Warning, this podcast may contain graphic and triggering content. Please listen at your own risk. Each individual struggle is different and everyone's recovery and healing journey is different. Please reach out to a certified medical professional if you need help. Welcome to episode 48 of Stomp the Stigma, the podcast aimed to fight the stigma surrounding mental health through education, awareness, experiences, stories, resources, and the vulnerable truth. Happy New Year, everyone. Welcome back. Joining me to Stomp the Stigma today is Darian Dorsey. He is a first responder, he's in law enforcement, he's out on the front lines every single day. He's got five different jobs, but I won't steal his thunder, I'll let him explain. But growing up, he had a crippling phobia, which I'll let him get into, as well as anxiety, which controlled his life for many, many years. This week, I was so lucky to hear his story and how he got through it, how he tackled it head on and is now a first responder dealing with it every single day. We got into the importance of positive self-talk and the ability to check in with yourself, how both of us kind of hid a side of ourselves for so long, but then once you get to a point where you're okay talking about it, it's so much easier to manage. We touch a little bit on mental health as a first responder and then the stigmas and stereotypes related to being a first responder as well as the stereotypes and stigmas in terms of gender and mental health. Going into this episode, I had no idea what we were going to talk about. I had no clue what Darian's story was all about, but I am so happy with how this episode turned out. I think it was a fantastic conversation and I hope you guys love it just as much as I did. Hello. Hi. <laughs> how are you? I'm good. How are you? Good. I'm just trying to make it. It's not too bright here. Angle's okay. It's okay. All right. This is the first time that I kind of have somebody on that I know, like, n- completely nothing about. Nothing about? Yeah. Well, why don't I do, like, a little introduction then so you can kind of, well, break the ice with it and kind of learn a little bit about this weird person that's in front of you <laughs> and then... Whatever, we'll go wherever you want from there. Sure, sure. Okay, okay. Well, a little bit about me. So I uh, I live in a small town in Alberta. It's called Peace River. And so I got posted here with the Alberta sheriffs. So I've worked as a sheriff for a little bit. And I joined tons of agencies. I decided to, you know, one job wasn't enough for me. So I joined uh, as a firefighter, became a firefighter, and uh, became a Canadian ski patroller and joined the military and search mm-hmm. and rescue and oh the list goes on but i just love it so that's a little bit about me crazy volunteer driven individual that just never shuts up and so that's that's the the person that's here today (laughs) oh wow i love that i love that okay well i don't even know how to start this because i don't know anything about you or where to go we'll we'll wing it and then we'll get there yeah Yeah. i mean (laughs) Yeah, like I said, I don't know anything about your story. I just know that you have one to share. And Tad has nothing but amazing things to say about you. So I'm excited. Um, well, how about this? How about, how about I give um, like a little insight? So it's basically my story is around um, anxiety. Okay. Uh, and it's going to be around uh, phobias. So phobia that played a huge oh. part of my life. And then anxiety, how that controlled a big part of my life. Ooh, to, interesting. Um, 
decision-making, um, and et cetera. So that's kind of, I guess, an idea of, of where, where I'm at. Yeah. Um, but yeah, yeah. Yeah. I guess for everyone that's listening, do you want to introduce yourself, like who you are and what you do, I guess? Yeah. So hi everyone. My name's Darian, Darian Dorsey, and I am a full-time sheriff and I work in the province of Alberta. I'm also a full-time firefighter and I work as a ski patroller for the uh, Canadian government. So that's Canada wide. And I am a member of the military. And of course, I am a search and rescue member as well to cover all avenues of law enforcement, first responding, you name it. That's a little bit about me in a nutshell. Wow. That is crazy. Have you always wanted to help people? You know what? From the, I want to say from the moment I was born, I wanted to help people. I, as far back as I can remember, I had a passion for making people happy, for making people feel safe and when I was a child, being a police officer was the dream. There, there was yeah. nothing else on the planet that could encompass public safety and helping people and helping others. And as I grew older and I joined other agencies, such as the fire department, I, I don't know, it's just seeing the smile on someone's face when you, when you do something good for them or, you know, having that thank you when you, you know, protect them from something that's criminal or something that's bad. It's just, it's so rewarding. And that's the fuel that drives me. Wow. I like that. I like that a lot. Oh my gosh. So I guess a day in your life is never boring. No, absolutely not. You know what? It's, it's funny people in my office, they actually call me uh, bad juju because it seems like no matter where I go, something happens and it's not always bad, but it's always action packed and it doesn't matter if we're at the mall or if we're at a restaurant and to give you a little example, I'm on vacation, I'm in a restaurant and we're just trying to have a meal. I excuse myself to go to the washroom and the head chef falls down the stairs behind me and uh, breaks his leg. So from there, it's I spend about an hour splinting his leg. They, they didn't have uh, any med, um, medical items on scene. So I had to use aprons and we had to break a broom to splint his legs so we could carry him up the stairs. Um, but yeah, so little things like that, where it's just, you know, that doesn't happen to the average Joe, but to Darian, this is just another, another day in the life. It seems like it's once a week, something like this kind of happens. So. Oh my <laughs> gosh. So this happens at work and outside of work. Absolutely. Absolutely. And you know what? I, I've always laughed because anytime I get some sort of training or special assignment, either it be, let's say animal rescue or, you know, vehicle accident training something happens and i need the training like within a day and it's always so coincidental that i'll look back and be like you know what wow it, a day later that training i literally need it because something's happened um but definitely yes there is never a dull moment there's always something going on in my in my world what? oh that is so crazy yeah so crazy i mean i guess I guess it's better than the alternative. I don't know if you can say better, but yeah, but you know what? It definitely, it keeps me on my toes. And yeah, that's no something kidding. that I love because I mean, I don't think anybody enjoys a boring life exactly. you know, where just nothing's going on. No, you need something to, to keep you up and keep you going. And yeah. for me, I, maybe I look for it. Maybe that's, <laughs> maybe, maybe I'm always looking for things since I've become an officer, but yeah. Yeah. You just, <laughs> you just bring it on yourself. Yeah. <laughs> But I love it. I embrace it. That's so amazing. Oh, I love that. I love that. 
Okay, well, let's get into your story. Yeah, I don't know anything about it, but all Tad said was that you have an incredible story about resilience and perseverance, and that's all that I know. But like you mentioned, anxiety and phobias. Do you remember the beginning or when this all started for you? Was it like when you were a little kid? You know what? From from as far back as I can remember. So to to break the ice here as to what the phobia was, when I was a kid, the phobia was the weirdest thing. It was vomit. Vomit. Like something that everybody finds is just gross, but to me was a paralyzing fear. So the thought of having somebody even vomit within the vicinity would be enough to cause me to have a physical response to that. Um, The thought of even being in a location where somebody may vomit is something that would be paralyzing to myself. It was something that rapidly progressed and something that would change my life forever. Um, And to answer your question, yeah, as far back as I can remember, that phobia kind of came i can't think and locate a specific day as to when that would have started or a specific event that may have triggered it however i do know from as far back as i can remember anything surrounding the idea the action even personal actions of vomiting was crippling absolutely crippling to give you a slight example when when i was really really young Um, my mom would introduce me to friends and she would have friends over and keep this in mind. I never wanted anybody to know my phobia. So until the age of, I want to say about 24, nobody really knew the reasons why I didn't want to do certain things, even my family. So I kept that from friends, from family members. They would just think that I just didn't like maybe going out or maybe I was a little bit antisocial. But the true reason behind it was was the phobia. Um, but yeah, so if my mom had friends coming over, it would be me locking myself in my room. And I love to talk. So it had nothing to do with not wanting to associate with them. Yeah. It was the fear that one of them might be sick. In whatever fashion, maybe they drink too much or eat too much, or but my brain would go. And that would put me in a position where I wasn't physically able to talk to people because in my mind, everybody at any moment could throw up and it's so bizarre <laughs> because it's something that in my mind was a reality that is going to happen mm-hmm. and for me that was get out isolate stay away hide and that was what I did for a good majority of my my youth and moving into young adulthood yeah wow so you don't know what it is about vomiting that you're afraid of or or that you know what I I asked myself that yeah. many, many times. And one thing that I will say that I'm blessed about is that I do have positive self-talk. So I'll actually sit down and reflect and ask myself yeah. genuinely, what what is it about this situation that's that's scary to me? And I couldn't I couldn't find the answer. I couldn't find the answer myself as to what it was. I thought maybe, you know, is it the sound? Is it the person actually doing it? It would be scary to the point where it would in it would be a reoccurring nightmare of just literally somebody throwing up and the nightmares would be multiple people in my school throwing up to the point where the hallways were filling 
and I would be like on the roof, gonna about to have a heart attack because it's coming, <laughs> it's coming. Oh my God. And that would traumatize me for going to school the next day, um, creating uh, personal relationships because the fear that I'm gonna have to be around maybe a significant other that might get sick or parties, you know, as a, as a young yeah. kid, there's parties, there's Halloween parties, there's Christmas parties. These were things that I didn't attend. Um, in Calgary, we have an event, the Calgary Stampede. Oh I God. couldn't oh find God. myself to actually go to the Calgary Stampede until I was in the 12th grade. And yeah, that would be the worst for you. Absolutely. Oh my God. That years of my life of experience, um, learning new things and meeting new people and experiencing uh, just life in itself. But the one thing I associated amusement parks, such as Calgary Stampede, was spinning rides, alcohol, a great potential for yeah. the one thing that I feared the most in life. And I would make any excuse in the book to not go. I would tell my, my mom I had the flu and I couldn't go or fake vomiting in the, in the toilet so I could stay home. Um, but I would never tell them the real reason. It would be me coming up with some scenario or saying, you know what, I got heat stroke, I need to go home. Um, and I did this every single year, every single event, every movie that I got invited out to, it, it, it became crippling, yeah. Wow, and your family or friends never suspected anything after so, all of these excuses? That, that's fair. So you know what? It act, they actually did. Um, moving into you know high school, yeah. uh, my friends my friends started getting the idea that I was scared to socialize. So for them, it was okay. He's just scared mm -hmm. of people. We got to force him out to go. So they wouldn't tell me we we're going to a party. They would mm -hmm. say we're going to a movie or we're going somewhere where it's a little bit tamer for me. I'm still my heart's still going. But then we would get we would get there, and I would realize we're at a party and full on shut down. And my friends would be like, "It's just people, man. Just you know, come sit on the couch and socialize. It's just people. No one's gonna harm you." And then it turned into a little bit more like you know the name calling, just a little bit more of the you know the the pushing the buttons because to them they didn't realize the severity of it. Mm -hmm. um, I did let them know later on in life that, you know what, I just don't want to be around vomit. I just, I don't want to be anywhere where somebody might throw up. I find it gross. You know, try and break the ice that way. Yeah. Um, but comments, you know, like get over yourself and it's just puke. And in reality, it is just puke. But for me, that vomit was the same thing as a man coming into a house with a gun. That fear triggered response was the exact same. So that was... That was something that took me years to get over. And I'm very proud to say that I'm not even slightly affected by today by something that I did on my own to handle my own phobia, which to this day, I don't know where I mustered the strength, but it was, and I, and I still remember the specific day that I decided to turn it around and say that, you know what, I'm done suffering. And it's something that dealing with victims now as a first responder is something that I realized took a lot of courage and a lot of strength because a lot of people can't face that demon. You know what I'm saying? And some people face that demon for the rest of their life. So I'm very, very blessed that 
it was something I was able to overcome. And for that day, I was leaving my house. And as I stepped out of my house, for some reason, there was a man right across the street looking at me and violently vomiting. <laughs> and so it was something that, of course, is a nightmare for me. Um, and so I'm looking at this man and I start shaking. I'm trembling. I've got to be about 100 feet away from him. I am nowhere near this man, but it's just him and I. There's no cars passing. There's no people passing. It's just this man from my nightmares, myself, shaking about to cry on the streets. And I look at him and I remember thinking to myself, go over there. Ask him if he's okay. And then the other part of my brain is get out of here, get back into your house. So I met in the middle. And to this day, I don't know how I had this happen with my brain, but I looked over, he looked up, I screamed, are you okay? And I ran for the bloody hills. I ran back to my house. I got back in the house, closed the door, locked the door in case pukey man would come running through my front door. And I sat on my couch going, you know what? I am a little chicken. However, I'm proud of myself that I was able to associate with somebody who's throwing up. And after about five, maybe 10 minutes of that, I decided to go out of my house and walk over to it. Now the man's long gone, but just to get myself to cross the street, to be within the vicinity of, of his throw up, his puke, took me probably about two hours. And so I finally, I finally got the strength to cross the street, got to the other side and I got maybe within 10 feet of it and just looked at it <laughs> and again, freaked out, ran back to my house, slammed the door, locked the door just in case this man would come kicking that door open to say he has some more puke for me to endure. But I sat on the couch again and I probably visited that spot. I want to say like, well, after it had gone, I want to talk like, months I would walk by and that spot then became a place for strength for me and how bizarre and weird it was for me to face a fear of something that's so minute and to visit a spot that has zero zero meaning to anybody it was just a spot where somebody was sick but that was the one moment in my life that started to change for the rest of my life to where I am today and was the one moment that I can think back to and say that, you know what, if I wouldn't have done that, I probably would be a hundred times worse than I, I was. And I'd probably be at a place where maybe I would never leave the house or never join law enforcement or never become a medic with the Canadian Ski Patrol because that would be not even on the table. So that is the, the one moment in my life that I can accurately say was the turning point for my, my phobia. Wow. So was there like an event or something that happened that caused you to say, okay, I need to do something or I need to change this? Well, that's fair. Um, you know what? I think it was more of like a buildup of events. Yeah. So for one, moving into high school, and again, this is as a high school student, it is hard enough being a student and it's hard enough being a student if you have a secret. And oh, yeah. 
anytime there's something that you have that you're hiding from somebody else, your fear the entirety of the time you're the entire time you're in school is that somebody else is going to find out about that secret. Either it be phobias, either it be sexuality or friendships or who you're hanging out with. Students can be very, very cruel. So for me was, you know, I never went to a house party until I was in grade 12. That was something that I just never did because I was terrified. When I went to my first house party, this, again, this would have been before my event of me actually going and um, looking at that men's, you know, sick pile. But uh, yeah, so going to house parties and having to leave within 10 minutes of arriving. And um, I remember one specific event that reduced me to tears because I was so embarrassed was my friend invited me over to his house. Went over to his house. He's my best friend. Still to this day, we're best friends. And we get to his house and he's having a fire in this backyard. But his sister, who had been several years older, um, invited a bunch of her friends over and they were all drinking. Well, I remember sitting around the fire and looking at everybody getting very, very intoxicated. And then the sweat started and the nausea. And I'm like, you know what? Somebody might be sick here. So I have to be, I have to be careful. But then they started doing, you know, drinking games. And now people were getting to a point where it's very likely someone's going to be sick. So I don't know why, but I decided to pipe up and say that everybody needs to put their alcohol away because my mother is going to come down here and she's going to get everybody in trouble and everybody's going to be arrested. And again, they were older than I was, however, not 18 at the time. So I would have been, I think this, I think I would have been in grade 10. They were probably in grade 12, I believe. Um, or maybe some of them were 18, some weren't. And I remember saying this because I knew if I could scare them, they would stop drinking and then I would be safe. Very selfish, but I knew I needed to do something because I'm panicking. And I remember they all start, started laughing and I'm like, no, I'm going to be in a lot of trouble. You guys need to stop this right now. And they, they just went into me like, you know, they threw beer at me, like, you know, start drinking and um, trying to put beer in my face. And I was telling them like, no, 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 I'm going to be in a lot of trouble. You guys need to stop. And eventually they, you know, got annoyed with me and they left. Well, from there, it became something that would be talked about, you know, don't invite Darian, you know, he's a princess, he, you know, his, he's a, he's a mama's boy and, and all this stuff. And it became challenging because they think that I'm like this, this rule follower, I'm in this box that, you know what, if you do anything that kind of bends the rules, I'm running to the police. And I'm, you know, that was the perception that I gave them. Meanwhile, it was actually, I was just scared someone was going to throw up. And so from there, I remember just the bullying kind of started and it wasn't anything severe. I should, I should make that clear. I never got bullied severely. It was more just um, a laughing at my expense and to a point where it added up to a point where I started becoming depressed by it, you know, and it wasn't something where I'm being pushed into lockers or, and it would just be little events of bullying that would add up to essentially mm -hmm. me being like, you know what, I just hate this version of myself. And I never hated myself. I hated the version of myself. And I knew that I wanted to change that. And that was the seed that drove me to, to conquering that, that fear. Wow. Yeah. Wow. That's amazing. Good for you. Thank you. Thank you. This is such a crazy story, but okay. First of all, I don't think your phobia is that weird. 
Okay. Like, I feel like that's a kind of a normal thing for people to be afraid of. Maybe not in, like, such a debilitating way that it was for you. But I feel like that's totally rational. Yeah. Well, and you know what? Like, it's it's a gross thing. I, I mean, like, we can all agree that yeah. it's something that nobody really likes or enjoys. Um, it's something that I find is so unique because I've, you know, I, I've yet to find someone that's like, I enjoy vomit. You know what I'm saying? So that's, that's what I agree is that it's something that we can collectively say is just gross and nobody wants yeah. to be around it. Yeah. Um, I will say like, as, as much as I have conquered it and I, I, I won't even say conquered, but learned to manage it because I still receive somewhat of an emotional response to it. And that's more just when, when the action happens, but mm-hmm. it's nothing that's I'm actually conscious of is going on because I'm not affected to the point where I'm not able to do what I'm doing or you know and I, I can still recall um, with a girlfriend grabbing um, an ex-girlfriend's hair while she was throwing up in the toilet that took me so, that took so much strength and of course they don't know they're just you know hold my hair I'm, I'm getting <laughs> sick but for me it was like oh my goodness I'm on top of the world right now because yeah. this is something I would never be able to do um, but yeah so Wow. Oh, that's amazing. So did you kind of get over it before you entered law enforcement and and became a first responder? Or was that after? So I will say yes, and I'll also say no. So yes, I definitely handled a good majority of my phobia basically before um, joining anything really really law enforcement my background before like as i was 18 and and onwards i joined security and did a little bit of work there to get my feet in the in the uh, or my boots in the mud um and so it kind of opened the door a bit for me and i was slowly easing off of my phobia but i still had i still had one like if i was patrolling with my security vehicle and somebody was getting sick would kind of still give me the oh turn down this road i gotta get as far away as possible um, when I joined law enforcement, um, I want to say that I'd handle a good majority to the point where if I was around it, it was fine, but I didn't want it too close to me, for example, in my patrol vehicle or what have you. Um, I think what kind of put the nail in the coffin altogether was when somebody actually got sick in my patrol vehicle. And then I realized, you know what, it wasn't as bad as I had imagined these nightmares of it crawling up over my head and you know what I mean? And, yeah. and consuming me and all that jazz. So, but, um, obviously still gross, something that yeah. I don't like happening in my car. I mean, I've had every bodily fluid you can imagine in my vehicle or thrown at me. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, it's one of those things that I've kind of learned to deal with, but I wouldn't have been able to deal with it if I hadn't tackled it head on. If I never exposed myself to it or, you know, actually faced my fear and and went at it head on, I would never, I would never be where I am. And I know that for sure. Well, yeah, I feel like a job like yours or or the multiple jobs (laughs) that you have would be so difficult with a phobia like that. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, And you know what? I mean, it's, it's one, that was the one reason. I mean, like I said, when I was a kid, I wanted to be a police officer that was my dream but the but in there was 
Is somebody going to be sick? Will I be able to do the job? And I would actually speak with police officers and, and ask them like, Hey, you ever have anybody get sick in the back of your car? And I remember an officer laughing. He's like, Oh, that's once a week. Boom. Hairs on my arm straight up. Yeah. Like my face is flushed. I'm like, there goes that career. I'm going to, you know, I'm going to throw everything out the window. I don't know. Maybe I'll be a Walmart and, and be a greeter. I, I didn't, I didn't know. You know what I mean? Like I just, I couldn't, yeah. I couldn't get my head around the idea of that so yeah oh my gosh so now you probably deal with vomit like on a regular basis big time especially you know what surprised me was with overdosing um individuals or after cpr or sometimes if you over oxidize they may vomit um (laughs) if you have people who are withdrawing it it might be both ends so for me that was the one that i had to kind of um adapt too quick and learn that you know what is this going to make or break me and again like I said growing up I didn't like that idea of myself and actually being able to sit down and say Darian you know this is affecting you to the point that you can't even go to the movies when I would go to a movie theater I would put I would have to be in a hoodie I'd put the hoodie over my head I would pull the strings as tight as they could go I would put a jacket over so I only had a window so that way if somebody behind me vomited it would be on my head I would at least be protected by it and then I would take my feet off the floor and have them up on the chair and that's how I'd go to the movies if I was ever brought to the movies from my parents or if I was subjected to it by my friends yeah wow yeah and I would just play it off I'm cold or this is what's comfortable or it's scary it's a scary movie I gotta hide yeah Oh my gosh. So did your anxiety kind of develop from your phobia? Uh, Big time. Yeah. Anxiety. That was, I can remember specifically that the root of my anxiety was procrastination. Mm. That was what I want to say started the anxiety. And then with the early onset phobia, just kind of exacerbated it. It was something that the two were best friends. If there's going to be vomit, there's going to be anxiety. And my anxiety was just as crippling. It was, it would start as a burning ball in my stomach and it would explode to the point that I could not sit still. I had to, I had to lose it. I had to yell, I had to scream, I had to run, I had to get away from my own body because the anxiety was, was crippling. And when I would procrastinate, I was a kid. I, I didn't want to do math homework. Come on. I would rather be out there playing with my friends. You know, I want to go play soccer. That was my passion. And then I put the homework off, 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 off. And then I would have to cram. And as soon as I would start cramming, mm-hmm. the anxiety would start burning up or I would get a question wrong and it would build, build, build to the point where I remember putting my pencil straight through the page, tearing up every piece of every page in my binder, ripping my binder, throwing my binder, and just running, gone. And then it would stop. But then I would feel that burning bubble come back yeah. and the anxiety would build up to the point where I just am like, I need to escape my own body. I am failing, I'm falling apart. And my anxiety was, at least from my mom's perspective, was something that she wanted medicated. That was, it was just something that was so crippling to myself and again, she didn't know about my puke phobia, uh, but it was just so crippling that it was becoming hard to, to manage. Mm-hmm. And again, for, for my anxiety, to this day, I've never been medicated for anxiety. 
um, it was one thing, and this is where, again, I'm, I'm honestly blessed that I'm able to sit down and talk with myself and, and find the root of what is bothering me and sit there and, you know, analyze my own emotional response and find out what is going on, where, where are you going wrong, what is bothering you to the point that you're doing these things. And again, I, you never get the right answer right off the hop. And it's always something that you have to kind of find. And it took, I want to say, in the better majority of my life to be able to handle. However, I have noticed that when I don't procrastinate and I have my homework done on time, the anxiety isn't there. And so over the course of a few years, I battled the anxiety and having homework done, the anxiety and homework done puke phobia, <laughs> all in this one little magical world. Um, but it was me failing my classes and seeing my mom with my report card cry and seeing her go, you know, I, I'm raising a failure and what am I doing wrong? Failing as a parent and seeing her cry absolutely destroyed me. I realized that, you know what, it doesn't matter what I'm doing right now, what I am doing is I'm actually affecting my mother. You know, the one person that I love, the one person that I care about, I'm affecting her by not applying myself, by, you know, taking advantage of situations. And so I promised myself that what I'm going to do is I'm going to buckle down. I'm going to get my assignments done. I'm going to get that done on time. I will worry about the phobia later. I put that to the back door. I want to work on school. I want to work on um, handling that so that way I can make her proud. And I did. I went on and I finished with honors. That was something I went from a failing student to an honor student. Um, seeing my mother at my graduation, you know, smiling ear to ear, crying um, was something that I'll remember for the, the rest of my life. It's a, a very proud moment in myself. However, I did notice that the more I applied myself and the more I stayed on top of my studies, the less anxiety I had. Mm -hmm. And the real true root of my anxiety was actually how much work I let pile up. And from there, I've devoted my entire life to maintaining um, my schedule and maintaining my workload. And if I have something I need to do, set a timeline, organize yourself, get, you know, an organizer, have calendars, have alerts, get yourself into a position where you're prepared because that just takes that one little extra notch off so you can handle the other struggles in life, which was my puke phobia. However, that did play hand in hand with anxiety as well. Um, and I can honestly say to this day, of course, I still have anxiety, but I do find that it comes back once I let my schedule slide, once I let, you know, my life depart. But I currently work five jobs with different organizations. And I mean, time management is very important. However, I find myself not in the same anxiety, but rather more in, okay, of a time crunch. Like, how can I get things situated mm -hmm. so that's kind of where i was with anxiety oh my gosh that's so crazy <laughs> i'm so happy that you are in such a better place now that's amazing thank you thank you and you know and it's it's so hard to say because there are so many people that struggle and there are so yeah. many people that will be struggling for the rest of their life yeah. and it's hard for me to stand up and say you know what you just have to have positive self-talk because that's not necessarily the answer for everybody. Yeah. And, you know, to say 
if you have a, a fear of spiders, just go look at a spider. You're going to be okay. It's, you know, it's just, it's not, it, it's a step in the right direction. Um, but I can honestly say that it works. And I can honestly say that having positive self-talk is probably the most important element to self-development and understanding what's truly bothering you and what, you know, is something that is causing a, a lot of your issues. And sometimes, you know, you get, I, I get anxiety to this day and I'm just like, I actually don't know what's bothering me. It doesn't matter how many times I ask myself, yeah. I won't know. It's something is going on that's causing me to be anxious. Um, but being able to sit down, you know, and talk to yourself positively, maybe not out loud, <laughs> maybe something more subconsciously, <laughs> but is, is incredibly important. And it's something that I preach to this day that, you know, when you lose the ability to check in with yourself, you lose yourself. And I think that it's just, it's incredible the power the brain has on you because I've seen it firsthand. I've endured it's the demons and it's absolutely incredible. Oh yeah, that is so true. Oh my gosh. You mentioned that you kept your phobia secret for a very long time into your twenties. What was that kind of reveal like, or, or how did that happen for you? Right. Well, you know what? Um, so my friends now, now that, uh, uh, I'm a grown adult have the full, the full idea and the full spectrum as to what it was like for me growing up. And, um, it kind of, I want to say I, I revealed kind of who I truly was when I started having a handle on what it was that I was suffering yeah. from and how I could potentially get over it because it was such a fear of mine that letting people know I'm struggling yeah. was such a scary thing because now I have it from both ang angles. I have potential bullying coming in and then I have this puke monster that's going to probably take me out in my sleep. So once I got a handle on it and, or what I thought was a handle on it, that's when I started letting some people in, mm -hmm. mainly my closest friends. Um, for them, we were kids. It became, you know, the punchline to, to some jokes and it, it, it wasn't something that necessarily I was supported on. There wasn't anything where it was like, you know what, um, maybe we should, you know, be a little bit more mindful cause this might be hard for Darian. It was never like that. It was kind of just, we don't care. And it's hard to say cause they're still my best friends to this day. We still talk about it. And it was just, you know, when we reflect as a group, it's just, wow. You know what I mean? We really we really didn't listen. We really didn't care, but I also wasn't really vocal about it, you know, mm -hmm. so I can't really blame them for them. They're just trying to figure out why I was so strange, why, why I was so different. And being different is just the fuel people need to just get a punchline or get a joke out there. Cause for everybody else that sees you being a little bit weirder or a little bit different, yeah. they pick up on that. And that's, it's funny. It's a joke to them. And, really they didn't realize how how harmful it was so yeah for in in other ways of saying it was basically letting people know that's what was going on was an incredible weight off my shoulders um having people be like you know what that's not weird like you were saying like it's not that it's not that weird you know and in my mind i'm the only person that fears vomit you know like there's nobody else maybe there's nobody else that has such a crazy response to it but there's people that are going to have responses to 
any phobia that's out there, either bee yeah. vomit or spider or you name it, right? So, um, but it was nice to have uh, a circle essentially of people who are supportive and realize that, you know what, people don't really judge you. Yeah. You know, it's yeah. people might think it's strange, but it doesn't change their opinion of you, you know, and that was something that took me a long time to figure yeah. out. Oh, that hits home for me so yeah. much. Oh my gosh. I, for me anyways, I struggled with depression and BPD throughout my okay. whole childhood and kept it a secret from everyone, including my family until I was in university, I would say. Okay. And like the same thing for me, if you start letting people in and telling them about what's going on, then it makes it real for you. And Absolutely. and you have to kind of accept that there's something wrong with you or you're different from everyone else and it's not normal or what, whatever you want to call it, but then it's real. And, Absolutely. but now that I kind of understand like what was happening to me when I was a kid or, or what's going on and how to manage that, it's so much easier to talk about and share with people and... Yeah, now, like, anybody can ask me anything about it. I don't care. But, yeah, I definitely hid that part of myself for years. Right. Yeah. And see, that that is what I find is incredible is, you know, we have this perception of how people are going to view us. And yeah. quite frankly, we don't even know how somebody's going to view us. And stories are so similar that once that weight comes off your chest, you know, and you open up to people and it's it's night and day from what you expected to happen you know that this horror that was to come and not to say that it doesn't happen because it it very well does some people that ex explain their stories that may endure intense bullying from it mm -hmm. however if you look back at who you were to who you are now and maybe you know maybe you aren't comfortable right now talking about um, issues that are going on in your life or maybe you are comfortable and maybe you're just getting to that that point it's incredible to look back and to see how much of your life you held on to before actually speaking about what what was affecting you in your life for myself to tell somebody what I had just told you oh my goodness that's something I couldn't imagine to do because yes. not only was it embarrassing that is life-changing news and to be able to open up and talk about it and realize that there's so many people that have um, something going on, so many people that have their own story because everybody has a story. And that is what I just admire so much about um, the human interaction in itself is that no matter who you speak with, no matter who you meet in a day, every single person has a story and there's something that maybe that they dealt with, something that they're currently dealing with. And that's why I preach kindness. And I think that it's important to be kind because it's everybody has something that they're dealing with. Oh, that's amazing. I couldn't have said that better myself. Oh, that's so good. <laughs> <laughs> okay, there is a debate, I guess, among people. How do I put this? There's a debate about the roots of mental health issues, whether it's kind of from nature or nature versus nurture, I guess. I don't know sure, if you've heard okay. that before. I'm having a hard time relaying this question. <laughs> um, but for you, the anxiety, 
kind of comes from your phobia, comes from procrastination. It doesn't really sound like it's from like a genetic place, I guess. Um, So my question for you is, what is your take on that nature versus nurture debate when it comes to mental health and, and struggles like that? Sure. So I'll give the, um, the worst answer and say it's both. Um, so yeah. in my personal opinion, I think that the reason why my, my own journey to recovery was so, shall I say, quote unquote, easier than, than others is because it was something that was more um, as a learned response rather than something yeah. that may be genetically um, endured. So for, for myself, I, I can't think of the time that, you know, I became traumatized by vomit, but I truly believe that there, it was a learned response through something that I had endured um, from childhood that created this, this entity that progressed and got worse the more I avoided and the more that I stayed away from that situation that made me scared. Um, now, genetically, I feel that these are something that is a little bit more lifelong. And in my mind, this is something that isn't, like I said, you can just talk to yourself and everything's going to be okay. Look at that pile of puke and it's going to be okay. Um, because I believe that the genetic makeup itself can can be something that affects the brain. And that's something that is not easy to handle on your own. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, uh, I'm going to say the answer is it's a little bit of both. Um now, if you want to look into my family's history, I don't necessarily have a family history of mental illness. Um, so I don't actually have um, as far back as I can at least tell um, that we don't really have anybody that has really struggled from anything that at least has been noted. Um, I do have friends, on the other hand, that have many generations of mental illness, depression, um, anxiety, um, even schizophrenia, and it seems like it just passes on routinely to the next generation. And um, my very good friend back in Calgary um, suffers from almost the exact same um, illnesses as her mother, which coincidentally suffers from the exact same illness as her mother. Uh, So that's where I believe that it is a little bit of both. I do definitely believe that there are learned responses to certain things and learned behaviors and I believe that a phobia and this is my personal belief that a phobia um, progresses and it progresses rapidly Um, but I also believe you can you can get a handle on your phobia not necessarily to say to fix it or to get rid of it but to Mm -hmm. learn how to necessarily um, deal with it or find ways of managing it Um, and my belief on that is actually tackling that head on so that's where i will comfortably sit in the middle of both <laughs> both answers <laughs> no that's okay because i i agree with that i agree that it comes it's a little bit of both i think absolutely yeah i want to talk a little bit about mental health in kind of first responders and that kind of thing as a first responder like i'm sure you've seen the worst of the worst absolutely. um that people should never see has your job negatively affected your mental health at all that you know of, I guess? Well, you know what? I will say if you were a first responder and your job hasn't affected your mental health, mm-hmm. you're lying. <laughs> it doesn't matter. There, you, I, I, 
I can honestly say almost instantly you can notice changes in yourself and depending on how mm -hmm. self-aware you are, mm -hmm. um, anytime you see something that the average Joe doesn't see or anytime you deal with a situation that is pretty critical, it changes you. Um, yeah. And I personally believe that, yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's there's events that have happened in the past few years that, you know what, I had to go home and sit down and be like, this is this is actually affecting me. This is something that is is critical, and this is something that you know what what you're feeling right now is okay because this is a normal response to the situation that just that just happened. Um, I will say the most interesting element to working um, law enforcement or even as a first responder is the idea that you need to be tough. There are so many resources for law enforcement members or first responders of any category. There are so many resources, so many um, contacts, even peer groups that you can reach out to. But the reason that they're not, you know, taken advantage of is that that idea that you have to be quote unquote hard. You have to have yeah. that shell because if you do reach out, then you're seen as weak. And even as an individual myself, I know it's not a weakness to reach out. It's important to reach out, but there's a part of you that doesn't want to be seen reaching out. And I remember thinking to myself, huh, mm -hmm. I preach reaching out, but here I am. I don't want to be seen reaching out. There's, there's that little bit in the back of the brain where all of a sudden, you know, if you are, I'm going to say as a victim of mental health, let's say an, an incident happened where you're struggling pretty hard with it. You don't want people to come up to you and, and, and treat you differently or shy away from you or feel that you're broken. You know, they, yeah. you don't want people to, to view you as um, not capable of handling the workload, but you also want that support system. You also want somebody to be there. So it's that, it's that in between balance that I find is incredible. And I think that is a big issue with law enforcement um, and the first responding world that reaching out for help, Although it's there, mm -hmm. you can just reach out and grab it. It's not that easy. And I think a big part of it is that idea of you have to be hard. Yeah. And it is changing. Don't get me wrong. That is something that, you know, the more we talk about it, and the more we actually normalize mental health and the more we normalize um, what's going on with ourselves, the easier it will be to reach out and say, you know what, guys, I'm struggling. I'm going to make a phone call. I need some time off. Mm -hmm. And that's, uh, that's where... I, I can see us going, but it's a yeah. definitely uh, a progress to say the least. Oh yeah, absolutely. I'm glad that it's going in the right direction though. That's, that's yeah. awesome. Yeah. There's such a, I don't know, a stigma or like a bias almost or kind of, <laughs> <laughs> I don't misconception. know. Misconception. <laughs> yeah. Misconception. Um, stereotype. Okay. that first responders and law enforcement are tough and right. strong all the time. And then you get the portrayal in movies and TV and things like that that follow the exact same thing. But like you said, anyone that's in that kind of a profession struggles with some sort of mental health Absolutely. at some and, point and in time. Absolutely. Do you think there are enough resources out there for first responders to deal with that? I would say yeah. 
I would say yes and no. I think that, you know what, um, especially speaking from my agency, um, or agencies, I should say, there are many, many resources, uh, free services yeah. to um, psychological assessments, to psychologists, to even um, uh, uh, psychologists for families and, and being able to bring your family in, in case your family's struggling with, you know, whatever you're dealing with. There are so many resources, but I'll say that it has to be addressed in a way that maybe we can break down the barrier of the comfortable level of actually reaching out to say um, that that we're struggling. And I think, you know, breaking down that barrier within offices individually, uh, within departments, uh, as towns, cities, and provinces, making it more acceptable, I think that's the biggest thing. Because, yes, even to this day, there's people that I work with, there's people that I've worked with in the past and people that I've even heard of um, through the grapevine who still actively, you know, make jokes at mental health. And um, and that's something that's not going to be vacant from um, any agency. This is something that's still going on. If you have a mental health disorder or um, if you have maybe a situation that happened where you're affected by it, people are going to make jokes either behind your back. And that's, that's current. That's to this day, um, and that's something that I think when we're able to, um, when we're able to tackle that, when we're able to bring down that wall of um, uh, essentially that it's okay to speak up. When we're able to normalize mental health, when we're able to normalize being not okay. That's when I think things will change. So I think the resource-wise, it's excellent, but. That, like again, it's, it's just waving it in front of your face. Yeah. How do you extend that arm and reach it? And that's where I think we need to focus. Right. Is there anything that the general public can do to kind of help with that? You know what? It's, it's a very hard question. Um, I think a huge, huge problem with um, mental health, especially with first responders, um, law enforcement specifically, is the public perception of law enforcement. Yeah. And honestly, a huge role player in that is social media. Um, there are a lot of negative uh, ideas of what law enforcement members do. And unfortunately, there's not a lot of individuals speaking up about the truth of what officers do and speaking up saying that, you know what, officers wake up in the morning proud to put their uniform on because they're going out to help protect their community they're not going out because they want to bully their community or you know and, and when i read these misconceptions and, and general genuine understanding of policing from certain, certain people's perspectives is that they like putting uniforms on to bully people or you know mm. be that 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 bully behind a badge or it just blows my mind that we're we're slowly moving away from what the idea of policing is and why people put on a uniform because they're proud. Mm -hmm. um, I'll give you a quick example of this. I was in uh, McDonald's in, in my home, my hometown here and uh, the town that I'm living in currently. And uh, I'm there and I'm in my uniform, my, my sheriff uniform. And there's a lady that's beside me and she's with her kid and her kid's just looking up at me. And I just happened to turn by and turn back and, and wave at the, the, uh, the girl. And the mom just grabbed the kid and, and pulled her in and, and basically whispered a few things to her and looked up at me and kind of frowned and then turned her, her child away as if I was some form of a threat. And so I thought to myself that was interesting because all I had done it was, was wave. Um, and fast forward to um, a different 
scenario, I'm, you know, a few weeks, few weeks to a month later, I'm handling a car accident scene as a firefighter. And I have families coming up and, you know, thanking us. And um, again, a mom with a child wasn't the same individual. However, you know, just being blessed of our presence there, even though there was no injuries, it wasn't a major scene or anything of the sort, but just being so unbelievably grateful mm-hmm. and to physically bring their child up. And, and so just that comfort level, I'm the same individual, you know, nothing's changed for me. The only thing that's changed was a uniform, but that uniform alone was enough to cause a, a negative response with that, that individual. And maybe they've had problems in the past. I can't, I can't, speak to that but what opened my eyes was the fact of same individual different uniforms was two completely different responses i think a part of that uh kind of stereotype and stigma is what we see in the media and the news and you hear about all of the the worst cases or the worst police officers like those are the headlines that you see and you never hear about everything else that goes on and all of the amazing, good, helpful things that you guys also do. So I think that plays a big role into kind of the public's perception of who police officers are. Right. And, And you know what, like just to circle back to your original question, imagine putting on a uniform, either be sheriff, police, EMS, fire, you name it. Imagine putting on a uniform and you're responding to a call. Anytime somebody calls 911, it's not going to be for a good reason. They're not calling yeah. because they're having turkey dinner. They want you to come stop by and say hello. There's something going on. It's a critical moment in that individual's life. So you're expected to put the uniform on. You're expected to respond. You're expected to deal with what have you for that situation. Um, and then from there, you have that negative response, and I'm just talking on the aspect of law enforcement now, is you have a negative response from the community, either it be, you know, they don't want you around, or maybe you're doing an arrest and now you have phones in your face because they don't want you there, but then you fast forward to news articles and then media, and so in an essence, Mm -hmm. it's almost like bullying. So. Officers thrive. Everybody who becomes a police officer doesn't become a police officer or a sheriff or uh, a correction officer because they want money. They become an officer because they love protecting their community. You know, making somebody feel safe, making somebody happy, making somebody, um, yeah, feel more comfortable in the community that they're in. That is what drives officers to put on that uniform every day. But when the community stops caring, when the community stops um, trusting you, now you're left in a situation where it doesn't matter because you're going to these negative calls. But even when you're in a situation without a negative call, you're in McDonald's, you're getting a negative response. So it doesn't matter where you go, you're getting hatred. So that in itself slowly starts plucking away at individuals. And this is going to be every law enforcement member. It doesn't matter how seasoned you are. It doesn't matter how many years in service you have. The human mind can only, the human body can only handle so much hatred, so much abuse that it starts to shut down. Now you mix in one life event. That officer goes through a divorce. The officer maybe loses a family member. You mix in that life event with a magnitude of hatred. Mm -hmm. 
you're looking at a situation where you have maybe a potentially already vulnerable individual who is now more at risk than ever. And this is something that a lot of people don't realize is that policing these days, law enforcement these days, corrections, everything, when you are putting that uniform on now, the idea, the happiness of you making your community, you know, a better place is shifting. That's something that you'll see that, you know, you're having a mass walkout of officers. You're seeing um, police officers leaving the job because they're saying, what is the point? Mm -hmm. You know, I do this for my community. If my community no longer loves me, I don't do this for the money. Yeah. You know, why work an average yeah. paying job and get horrible mental health, you know? So it's interesting to see the public's perception as to why officers put on a uniform mm -hmm. and why officers do the job they do. However, a lot of people look past the, the effects that the job actually has on them and society and social media all encompassing in one. So that's at least my opinion. And that's something that I've kind of observed um, in the law enforcement community from officers that have taken their own lives to hearing stories of people that, you know, don't want to be where they are anymore because of the perception, the community perception, because, yeah. yeah. Wow, that's a really good point. That's, yeah, I like that. That's really good for people to hear. I did want to ask you about kind of the mental health aspect um, as it relates to gender. Okay. Because there is such... I mean, there's a stigma around mental health to begin with, but I feel like there's even more of a stigma around mental health struggles in men versus women. Because men, like first responders or, or law enforcement, they're supposed to be strong and tough and not show their emotions and all of those stereotypes. What is your kind of experience with that? Or, yeah, have you experienced... Okay. So I, I've definitely experienced, um, like for, for example, gender, um, one thing that I've noticed is that females coming into the role of anything, um, I'm going to say first responding and law enforcement, uh, have subconsciously put themselves in a position where they're almost, how do I want to say it? Almost feeling like they need to fill shoes that are, are bigger than, than they, than they have. And they don't necessarily need to do that. You know, it's, I think it's something that's not consciously done, but it's something that I've noticed that it's this idea that it's a man's world, you know? And, and like you said, it's you're if you're a female, you're stepping into this world where you need to be hard. So therefore you have to be on all the time. You have to be tough and you have to do this and you can't show your emotions because if you show your emotions, then you're just a stereotypical quote unquote girl and you can't handle the job. I will honestly say out of any partner that I could have, I would work with a female officer. I would work with a female firefighter because you know what? They have a way of handling themselves. They have a way of handling others and they have a, a damn good way of handling situations that may be critical to you name it. Female um, law enforcement members, first responders are incredible to have on a team in any team, any enforcement category that I can think of. What I've noticed, though, is there's definitely an attitude to try and fill a, I want to say, a position that society has kind of enlisted as a tough position. And unfortunately, you'll see females, um, maybe you grew up with them, 
that when they get into certain roles that they're now changed, they're, they're different, their demeanor's different, their attitude's different, their, how they present themselves is different because there's an idea and there's a standard. And that's something that I think society is kind of catching on to. Mm-hmm. And it's something that we're slowly, you know, breaking the wall down to equality between two. So that way we don't have to have this action of being hard. But again, that's a very incredibly hard thing to ask because speaking um, on behalf of law enforcement, you you can't necessarily be soft in certain situations. Mm-hmm. You have to be able to be able to handle yourself and you have to be able to handle situations. So it's hard because you don't want to necessarily show emotions when you're dealing with a you know, and that either, either that be male or female, you don't want to show necessarily that you're weak or not quite strong enough in front of criminals or dealing with serious situations because that in itself is a vulnerability. Mm-hmm. And that's something that, you know what, when you're handling a situation such as a domestic, you don't want to go in there and be like, hi, let's start this off. I'm incredibly emotional and I'm very weak, but you know what I'm saying? Like you don't yeah. want that front to even come forward when you're dealing with the situation so it's hard to eliminate that i want to say that bias but it's also something that's important because i feel that you know in an agency you should be yourself you shouldn't have to try and fit a role you know what i mean so that's that's kind of my my opinion on it and again i mean any any woman that i've worked with in any agency they have been bad asses. They have, they have run the show. They control the situation. They keep the men in line. And I absolutely love to see the men tuck their tails and run, especially when they get their gears going. Oh, I just love it. I just love it. <laughs> okay. I have two more questions for you that I ask pretty much everyone that comes on the podcast. Okay. And then we'll wrap it up. Um, the first one, looking back over your whole journey, is there any advice that you would give your younger self or any advice that you wish that you would have received when you were younger? Absolutely. And, and you know, it's an incredible question. I would say try, you know, that for me, I never tried mm-hmm. and I never, I never reached out. And it's so easy to say that now. Oh my God. It's oh, easy yeah. to say that now, but if I could just go back, shake myself and say, you know what? Try because I won't know what success is like until I try. I'm going to forever be stuck. And in my mind, I am stuck. I'm just dealing with my current situation and I'm just going to deal with my day to day. Try, set your goals, try something. If you, if you're struggling with a a, a puke phobia, for example, push yourself a little bit. Every time try, can you stand within 10 feet of that situation? You can. Then you ran for the hills, but you know what? You did it. You stood in front of it. You handled yourself. You know what? Try try five feet. You know, push yourself, challenge yourself. Just try. For me, if I would just tried sooner, I would have so much of my youth that I would have experienced differently. And again, I wouldn't change it for the world because that has taught me so much about myself and has taught me so much about the human predicament that it's incredible to see and meet people who who have the same um, struggles, obviously not the same phobias, but I like hearing about people who have mm-hmm. different phobias because I love hearing that they all have similar situations and it all led to a situation where they tried, they did something where they pushed themselves, 
to try something new, to try, you know, maybe even encouraging themselves to do something, but everything balanced on one thing. And that was that they tried either it failed and they tried a different route or what have you, everything came down to one, one element. And that was you tried. And for me, if I could just go back and say, you know what, little buddy, head across that street, go pat that man on the back, try. I'd probably say, no, that's okay. Maybe another day. But if I could plant that seed, yeah. that if I try, I'm going to try a little harder every time and I finally will succeed. Oh, that is such a good one. I like <laughs> that a lot. Yeah. Oh. Okay, last question for you. Absolutely. Um, is there a stigma or a misconception surrounding mental health that bothers you the most or that you hear most often that isn't true? A stigma around mental health. Um, so for one that bothers me would be the, the law enforcement. You have to be hard because as a first responder, um, or I'll say law enforcement and first responding, um, you can't you can't show that you're you're hurting or that you you know you suffer from anything um i really don't like that because i think that it's something that you should be able to openly say hey i suffer from this hey Mm -hmm. i suffer from ptsd hey you know what i'm saying that should be something that's normalized i can't stand when people say law enforcement first responders they don't have mental um health concerns they don't have you know they're not suffering from anything they they're soldiers they're warriors they're just mute to emotions. I hate that. That's something that everybody suffers with, but there's so many people that suffer in silence. So that would be something that, that, that stigma that, you know what, we are these perfectly trained individuals that can just deflect all these critical situations and we're just happy go-getters. And for the most part, we are almost everybody that I know is a happy type A personality. However, everybody's got something that they've dealt with, something that they're dealing with um but that would be the biggest thing um surrounding that would be just be cautious be cognizant that there are people that are in first responding elements or or world that you know need help and are just quite frankly not sure how to take that ticket because there's so many factors in their current life that are blocking it or the stereotype that you can't reach out and grab it because you're supposed to be okay I love that question because everybody has a completely different answer. Yeah. (laughs) I like that one too. Okay. Well, that is all the questions that I had for you. Uh, Was there anything that you wanted to talk about that we didn't touch on? Uh, No, I think, you know what? I think that was a pretty well-rounded questions, a couple questions there. So no, I think that that's everything for me. Yeah, that was great. I think that was awesome. Me too. Um, if people want to reach out to you or have more questions for you, are you open to that? Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I, I have um, an email that I check regularly. Um, it comes straight to my phone. And if there's anybody that wants to reach out, more than welcome to send me an email, especially if somebody's just, you know, like struggling, somebody, you know, is not sure about their current situation or in law enforcement is like, hey, you know, I have a similar story. Absolutely. I'd love to hear and reach out anytime. So email is the best way to reach out? Yeah, absolutely. Email. Okay, perfect. Thank you so much for tuning in today. Feel free to reach out at any time. You can contact me on Instagram and Facebook at StompTheStigmaYYC. And you can email me at StompTheStigmaYYC at gmail.com. 
If you like the podcast, please like and subscribe on YouTube, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or Apple Podcasts. And if you or someone you know would like to come on, I would love to have you share your story, speak your truth, and together we can stomp the stigma.